All right, I think that I am set and I'm ready to get going here. We just finished up preaching through 2 Thessalonians just a couple of weeks ago, and Lord willing, before the year is out, we will have multiple more preaching series where we take a book of the Bible and we go through it verse by verse. In my first year here, since I started as pastor going back two years is when I started before I felt ready to really launch into verse by verse preaching all of the time when I kind of didn't have a direction. I kept going back to the book of Matthew and looking back to passages that I had highlighted when and reading through the book, and I've had this one marked aside for probably over a year to get to at some point, and I love preaching from the Gospels. I love preaching the words of Christ, the stories of Christ, the miracles and the doctrines that he would preach, the depth that comes to life of the Son of God in the flesh for three and a half short years of ministry, and whenever he spoke, it was the Word of God. This morning, as you can see the title, we're going to be preaching on the subject of the unpardonable sin. We'll read just two verses here for the main text, then we'll pray, give some introduction, and we'll get into this, and hopefully I can keep it moving and head sometimes towards our normal time of being done and still get to preach this whole thing. So let's read Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 31. The Lord Jesus Christ says, Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with me this morning, that you would forgive me and my sin, empty me and myself. Help me to the best of my ability this morning, Lord, to look to the text with no prejudice or agenda, no goal other than to look to the text and to say, thus saith the Lord. I do pray if there's anyone here today who does not know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. Bless the preaching of the word of the Lord. Bless our gathering. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text this morning is one of several clear texts in the Word of God that tell us that the idea of universalism is not true. Several years ago, a pastor in the Detroit area of a megachurch wrote a book, I believe the title of it was Love Wins, and his thesis was that perhaps all of the teachings in the Word of God about hell, about fire, about judgment were simply allegorical, and in the end, everyone would be accepted before God, no matter where they lived, no matter who they were, no matter what they believed in, God would simply allow everyone to enter into heaven. If you've studied the Bible or the words of Christ at all, you know that that is not true. Our text this morning shows perfectly well and clear that God is a God of mercy and forgiveness, standing with arms open wide, ready to forgive all manner of sin. Yet on the heels of Christ saying, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven men, Christ said there is a sin that if committed will never be forgiven not in this lifetime, and not in eternity. Christ has made it clear that yes, mercy, forgiveness, a home in heaven is available through the work of Christ on the cross, but he has also made it clear that the way that leads to heaven is a narrow way. Few there be that find it, and many there will be who will choose to take the broad path of destruction and who will fall into eternal condemnation rather than eternal forgiveness. 
These verses are interesting. They've been often debated, perhaps confused, and caused fear among people. And we're going to get to the meaning of them eventually. But in the meantime, let's do a little bit of background here in this chapter. And our main text, we're going to begin going verse by verse here in just a moment from verse number 22. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is reaching what we could call a boiling point in his rivalry with the Pharisees. It is They have been going round after round, toe to toe. Jesus continues to preach the truth and to do miracles that would lead any logical person to come to the conclusion that he is from God, that he is the Messiah. Yet the Pharisees in their hard-hearted obstinacy continue to look for excuses to push away and to find a reason to say he is not of God. He is not the Messiah. We have the truth. He is not the truth. The Pharisees pop up over and over again in the records of the Gospels. And today we use it as a byword. If we tell someone you're being a Pharisee or you're being Pharisaical, we mean you're being legalistic. You're, you're holding to what you technically think is the truth, but you're doing it without love. You're doing it without mercy and you're doing it in rejection of God. The Pharisees were a very popular faction of the Jewish synagogue leaders. They were extremely influential and they were extremely pious. The word Pharisee itself means separated. They believed not only in keeping all of the direct instructions of the Old Testament, but they also believed in keeping an inordinate amount of rules that were not taught in Scripture. And as such, they actually violated the Word of God because contained in the Law of Moses is the direction to not add or take away from the commandments that God gives us. So you see, when we do like that pastor in Detroit, and we want to take away from the truth of God because we don't want to be divisive, it's a sin. But when we add to the Word of God, God is just as displeased. So then they were caught up in the keeping of thousands of rules and of traditions. And they loved to walk in the marketplaces and have people say, there are the pious ones. There are the spiritual ones. They pray the best prayers. They fast. They know about the Bible more than I do. They loved the praise of men. And they had fought against Christ from the very first. Though they should have been the first ones to have received Christ and to look at the Old Testament prophecies and say, this is the Messiah. There's no way that it's anyone else. They continued to reject, to push against it. And as such, it was coming to a dividing line, boiling point, where they had so proclaimed that Christ was not the truth, that he was not the Messiah, that they had one of two options, to repent and to lose face in front of everyone whom they had already told that Christ was not the Messiah, or they could continue in their hard-heartedness and continue to find every possible excuse they could to try and rage against the truth right in front of them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. In Matthew chapter number 12, they're doing this round after round, back and forth, Jesus and the Pharisees. In verses 1 and 2, it tells us that Jesus with his disciples on the Sabbath day walked through a field and his disciples plucked ears of corn and began to eat them. And the Pharisees said, your disciples are doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath day. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath, but they're pulling ears of corn. And as Jesus had told them over and over again, they were caught up on things like whether hand washing was done correctly or whether or not corn was pulled out of the field on the Sabbath day. But yet they were devouring widows' houses. They were cheating people. They were leading people straight into the fires of hell. 
They were caught up on the minor, but on the majors, they were completely wrong. Their heart was completely opposite of the heart of God. Jesus then began to show them out of the Old Testament that, that even David, when he entered into the tabernacle, he was allowed to eat of the bread that was supposed to be a, a holy thing and how God allowed that. And Jesus went on to tell them that he was greater than the temple. He was the fulfillment of the temple. He was the presence of God directly there in their midst and that he had liberty for his disciples to eat corn on the Sabbath day if that's what he decided to do. In the verses that follow, down in verse number 10 and onward, there was a man who had a withered hand. And at this point, Jesus was beginning to get famous and popular. And if you were sick, you were desperate to get yourself or your loved one to the man called Christ, the miracle man who was taking away people's diseases, who was raising them from the dead. And the Pharisees, knowing that Jesus had an intent to heal, to love, to do good works, like heal people who needed it, came to him and tempting him, they said, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days? And Jesus told them, You're a hypocrite. Which one of you, if you had one sheep who fell into a ditch, would not make an effort to pull the sheep out of the ditch, even on the Sabbath day? You wouldn't want to lose that animal. You would have compassion on them. You would desire to keep the income that ultimately is produced from owning these animals. And Jesus said, how much better is a man than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath day. And Jesus is Lord, even of the Sabbath day itself. And he would do good. He would do his will, even if it was the Sabbath day. Now we come to our main text. One of the most striking, convicting, fearful passages, I personally believe, in all of the word of God. At this point, as I said, news of the miracle man Christ had spread. The Pharisees were at risk of losing everything. And this led them to irrational accusations and unbelief. Irrational unbelief is the ultimate end of a heart who willfully rejects God in the light of great revelation from God. And Jesus goes on to tell them they will be held accountable not for the sins that they had committed, that those sins were unforgivable, but the refusal to accept Christ and come to Him and realize that He is sent from God and He does His works of God will ultimately never be forgiven if we are to die in that state. First of all, verse number 22, the first part of the story is we see the miraculous healing. Verse 22, Then was brought unto Him one possessed with a devil, blind and dumb, and He healed him insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. Just straightforward, just flat out the record. Unlike last week, the text we looked at where the father came and he went to the disciples and they couldn't do it. Then he went to Jesus and Jesus went back and forth with him and he cried out, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here it says they bring one to Jesus who was possessed of a devil. It, the devil had caused him, the demon that he was possessed with, had caused him to be blind and, and dumb, unable to speak. And the scripture simply says, he healed him, insomuch that the blind and dumb both spake and saw. And power over nature was no problem to Christ, for Christ is the creator of all. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Nothing was made without Him, but by Him were all things made that have ever been made. This was a regular occurrence. This had happened over and over. This is why the fame of him spread and why everyone was there. And look, it happens right in sight of all the people. 
There is no denying the fact that Jesus just did a miracle. They weren't able to go and say, oh, well, this, this is a, a Benny Hinn show. They, they, they faked it. He, he was pretending. I saw him two days ago and he was fine. No, there were eyewitnesses and people that had known him all of his life, no doubt, who could say he was blind. He could not speak. He was tormented. This is a genuine miracle. Jesus just flat out did it. The evidence was undeniable. And then the people watching began to react. And their reaction is about to set the Pharisees into an all-out panic where they start twisting themselves into pretzels to try and get out of the fact that God is in the flesh doing miracles right there in front of them. Okay, stay with me. Verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, Is not this the son of David? The word here for amazed means to be astounded, almost out of your mind with shock and amazement and wonder. And they saw the miracle plainly happen right in front of them. And in their amazement, their astoundedness, they said, is not this the son of David? The son of David is not just a casual term. In 2 Samuel 7, 16 and other passages in the Old Testament, it was prophesied that God would allow a descendant of David to rule and reign on the throne from Jerusalem forever without ending. Therefore, people realized those prophecies were about the Messiah that was to come. And in the days of Jesus, the term son of David was spoken of by the Jews to recognize the Messiah, the long-awaited one, Christ who was to come and to set up his kingdom. The phraseology, it, it seems more than saying that everyone accepted him immediately as Messiah. They said, is not this the son of David? In other words, they were saying, could it be that he's here? Isn't this him? This must be the Messiah, right? Who else would be able to do this? They knew the prophecy from Isaiah 35, 5, which is a messianic kingdom come type of passage if you read it all. And it says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. The exact same miracle he just performed before their eyes. Blind eyes were opened and the ears of the deaf were healed. Now they could hear. The people were reacting to the supernatural power that unequivocally, undebatably had just been poured out and done right in front of their very eyes. This must be the Messiah. This must be Jesus. This must be the son of David. Who else could it be? What else could be the explanation for the cause of this wonderful thing? So then what would the Pharisees do in the face of this irrefutable evidence? There is no possible denying that this is a supernatural healing. That would be absurd to say this man was not just healed. So then they have options. Repent and turn to Christ. Retreat, not say anything at all. Or in their unbelief, try to attribute a clear work of God to the devil himself. The Pharisees could not deny that it was a miracle, but they decided to claim that it was indeed a miracle, but that that miracle was done of Satan himself. Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow doth not cast out devils, but by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. Let's break this down just a little bit more. The phrase there for Beelzebub was a false god from history that was associated with Baal worship and the Philistines. By this time, amongst the Jews, it was used of the devil himself, and it was a term of extreme contempt and disdain. 
The phrase Beelzebub means literally Lord of the Flies or Lord of Filth or Dung, a name that the Jews use for the devil himself out of extreme hatred and contempt. In Mark's account, he records that the Pharisees said he casteth out devils through the prince of devils. You see what, what the accusation is? Yes, he did the miracle. He cast out a devil. We can't deny that he had power that comes from beyond this world. But in order to cast out one of the devils, he got the power from the prince of devils, the devil himself. Witchcraft in those days, or at least in the Old Testament, got the death penalty. It was a serious accusation. Their obstinate, hard hearts came to a ridiculous conclusion. They said this, it's also interesting to note, away from Jesus. They didn't say it directly to Him. They didn't come to Jesus and say, you're doing this miracle through the power of the devil. Rather, they were trying to say it to the people to try and sway the crowd away from receiving Christ as their Savior. But Christ is God, and He not only heard what they would say within His earshot, but He knew their thoughts and He knew their heart. Mark 3.23, it says in Mark's account of the same story, And he called them unto him, and said unto them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? So you see, the Pharisees were apart from him, and Jesus had to summon them. Come to me, let me ask you a question. And Matthew, in the rebuttal, in verses, 12, verses 25 and 26 of Matthew 12, it says, And Jesus knew their thoughts. It's kind of hard to get ahead a of somebody who knows what you're thinking already, who looks into your heart and knows exactly the ponderance of your soul and your spirit and the state of your heart. Jesus knew their thoughts. And He said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand? Here Jesus, in his giving a rebuttal of their accusation, is pointing out what an absurd argument they had made. Jesus uses simple logic to do this. He says any nation, any city, any army that turns to civil war begins to destroy themselves from within. And if the devil is casting out a devil... He is divided against himself. How shall his kingdom then stand? In other words, Jesus said, you don't deny that this was a terrible act of the devil, that a demon possessed this boy, and you don't deny that a work of the devil has been overthrown and undone wonderfully, greatly, miraculously, but yet you say the devil himself did it. It's absurd. It's ridiculous. At this point, you're grasping at straws to try and come up with an argument for why the miracle was valid, but the power behind the miracle was not from God, but came from Satan. He continues his argument. And if I by Beelzebub cast out devils, by whom do your children cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So a couple of things about this verse. Your children, the word here for children or your sons, is used broadly and figuratively. While the primary meaning is children or sons, it can be used to say your followers, your disciples. So Jesus says, if I am casting out devils by the power of the devil, by what power do your disciples cast them out? So then we see here the question, were the followers of the Pharisees casting out demons? Did they try to cast out demons? 
I'm of the opinion through comparing scripture and history that they had disciples who were giving themselves to the, the activity of exorcism and trying to cast out demons, but most likely it was not a valid actual work of God, but rather it was a human attempt to try to do so. So I'll say more about that, but what Jesus is primarily doing is he's taking away their argumentation and boxing them in. He doesn't comment on whether or not their disciples are actually casting out demons, but he's saying in a public debate before the listeners, you're saying that I'm casting out devils by the power of the devil. Don't your disciples claim to cast out devils? It was a debate tactic that was designed to box them in. And if they were to admit that their disciples were casting out devils by the power of the devil, it would invalidate their own work. But if they said they did it by the work of God, it would then by comparison be validating the work that Jesus did when he was casting out the devils. The historian Josephus records that the Jewish exorcist would try using complicated things like burning herbs, immersion in water, reciting incantations, etc. Perhaps I believe it was not legitimate at all, but we see in Acts chapter 19, there were certain vagabond Jews, exorcists, seven sons of Sceva, who was a Jew and the chief of the priest. They were exorcists, but they didn't even know God. And when they came face to face with true evil, rather than having power over it, like Christ and his disciples, they went to one in Acts 19 who was possessed of a devil. And they said, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches, come out of him. And the evil spirit spoke directly back to these men who were claiming to be demon caster outers, uh, exorcists. And he said, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? I don't know who you are. I don't recognize your authority at all. And the evil spirit came out of the person who was possessed and attacked the Jewish exorcist who were trying to cast the demon out. Josephus said that they would have extremely detailed rituals and traditions. Most of the time they would verbally rebuke the evil spirit, but sometimes they would attempt what they called beating the demon out by beating the poor supposed demon-possessed man to a state of almost unconsciousness, thinking that their beating and kicking him around would cast out the devil. At any rate, they themselves claimed to do this. The main point is don't try to debate Jesus. Don't try to debate the person who created everything, including you. You best just agree with what he says because ultimately you will be found to be a liar and foolish if you disagree with him. At one point it says that they would ask Jesus a question. And he'd say, okay, that's a good question. But before I answer that, let me ask you a question. And they would be so confounded that they would leave. And from that day forth, it says they didn't ask Jesus any more questions because he made them look foolish. Then he says at the end of this verse, therefore, they shall be your judges. In other words, those who are claiming to follow the Pharisees and cast out evil spirits. If you say I do my work of the devil and they do their work of the devil, they will be condemning you. Their absurd claim is allowing Jesus to put them in a bind and box them in where they cannot logically or rationally win the argument that they are having. Okay, verse 28. Here we come now to what we would call the rub, where the rubber meets the road, the crux of the matter, the point upon which the entire debate hinges. Jesus says, but if I cast out devils by the Spirit of God, then what's the only possible conclusion? then the kingdom of God is come upon you. 
You see, Jesus was not fulfilling all of the Jewish expectations at that moment in time because they were looking to Psalms and Isaiah and Zechariah and Jeremiah and saying, no, the Messiah is supposed to set up His kingdom on the earth. So if you were the Messiah, you would defeat the Romans. You would set the Jews free. You would set up your throne right now which is part of what the people meant when on Palm Sunday they cried out, Hosanna to the King. They were saying, not here is my Savior, here is God in the flesh, the payment for my sin, but here comes the King who's going to set us free. He's riding into Jerusalem. Surely He's about to conquer the Romans and set up His kingdom. But Jesus had to tell the Pharisees and the Jews and His own disciples over and over again, I'm not here to set up my kingdom right now, meaning to set on the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years and rule the earth. I'm here now to fulfill Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, and other Old Testament passages that prophesy the Messiah is going to die for your sins. I'm here now to pay for your eternity. I'm going to go back to heaven. I'm going to task you with the great commission to give the gospel. And when it's the will of the Father, at a time you don't know, nor will you be able to figure out, I'll come back to set up my kingdom. And there's a couple of different times where Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is come upon you. What he was saying is that I'm the king. If I'm the king, I'm in front of you. And in order to enter the kingdom of God, you have to do more than just be a Jew. You have to repent and believe in me and receive me as the Messiah. So Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is here. It's in front of you. You must believe in me or you will never actually enter the future kingdom for all of eternity. And those phrases do not negate the fact that he gave multiple specific prophecies over and over again that there would indeed one day be a future kingdom that he would set up where he would reign. What Jesus is saying here is it's either or. You've already admitted that the miracle is genuine. I've pointed out to you that claiming Satan was the power behind this miracle is ridiculous. Therefore, you're left in a bind. It's either done by God or by Satan. If it's not done by Satan, dot, 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 then the kingdom of God is here. Then I'm the Messiah. Then you have to repent. So then they will have the choice of either repenting or continuing to irrationally, ridiculously claim that the devil himself was giving Jesus power to do the miracles. Look at verse 28, and then we'll read some commentary here on verse 28. Now Jesus adds that the Pharisees are missing the most important point of all. If he is truly casting out demons by the power of God's Holy Spirit, then the kingdom of God has come at last. Of course, this is exactly the conclusion the Pharisees are trying to avoid. The problem here is not merely that they do not believe, it is that they do not want to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I'm getting ahead of myself, but no, this is ultimately the sin that cannot be forgiven. If you receive clear light that Christ is God and the only option for salvation, but you say, I do not want the truth, this is the only sin that will never be forgiven. Christ leaves His critics no room to escape the most rational conclusion before them. He does indeed cast out demons by the Spirit of God. Jesus continues His argumentation, His rebuttal of their ridiculous accusation in verse 29, Or else how can one enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he first bind the strong man? And then he will spoil his house. Jesus says, if you're going to go into a strong man's house and rob it, you don't knock on the door, wait for him to come and say, hey, I'm going to go take all of your stuff. 
I know you're big and you're strong. No, if you wanted to rob and spoil his goods while you knew he was at home, first you would go get him, tie him up and bind him. Then you would start taking his stuff. So what's Jesus saying? Here in this chapter, Christ is invading Satan's realm. He's exercising power over the devil himself. He's taking away what belongs to Satan. And he's saying, I'm more powerful than you. I'm infringing upon your territory. I'm here to win the salvation of souls that you claim. In Matthew chapter 4, before Jesus began his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He overcomes Satan's temptations by quoting the Word of God, commanding him to be in subjection to the Word of God. Then the phrase appears, Then the devil leaveth him. So before he began to do the miracles, he conquered the devil, he beat the temptation, and the devil departed from him. Jesus bound the strong man Satan by exercising his authority over him before he began to go into Satan's territory and stealing what the devil wanted to keep. Okay, this was godly power, not demonic power. It's ridiculous to think the devil would have sanctioned Jesus taking away the devil's goods. That's the point Jesus is making. A few more comments here on Matthew 12, 29. That's what Jesus is describing in this verse. He has entered Satan's house, the earth, to plunder his goods. The people who will be gods. He began that robbery by first binding the strong man, Satan, so that he, Jesus, could work freely in removing Satan's grasp from those who would eventually trust in Christ. Jesus' point to the Pharisees was larger than merely denying that he obtained power from Satan. It's that his power is precisely the opposite of that. It is godly power. The Pharisees were as wrong as they could possibly be about what was happening right in front of their eyes. Then Barnes notes, A man could not break into the house of a strong man and take his property unless he had rendered the man himself helpless. If he had taken his goods, it would therefore be sufficient proof that he had bound the man. So I, he says, have taken this property of the possessed person from the dominion of Satan. It is clear proof that I have subdued Satan himself, the strong being that had him in possession. The words or else mean or how, how or in what way, etc. Spoil his goods. The word here for spoil means now to corrupt, injure or destroy. Here in the text, it means to plunder, to take with violence as it commonly does in the Bible. So then Jesus says, I am by force taking what belongs to the devil, and it's because I've already bound him and put him in his place and told him I have authority over you. He's just continuing his argument that it's absurd to try and claim that he was taking the devil's things, doing miracles to defeat the devil by the power of the devil himself. Please stay with me. I'm trying to, to move quickly here this morning. The story continues with Jesus saying, he that is not with me is against me and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. It's the opposite of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 9 and verse number 40. When the disciples came and said, One was casting out devils in your name, but he's not with us, so we forbade him. We told him, Stop doing that. And Jesus said, Leave them alone. You don't have to go attack other people who are serving me, but who are not walking with me and you doing exactly what we do all the time. And therein is a great lesson for us as Christians. Do not forbid people from doing works for Christ if they're not doing them the exact same way you are, if they're not of the exact same camp or stripe. And even if you don't agree with everything they do, pray that God's using good through it. And don't always be looking 
to put people down and forbid them from doing works for Christ. Here he uses it in the opposite context. He's warning the Pharisees that you indeed in this instance are against me. You're not gathering with me, you're scattering. You're against me and in turn, you are against God. You see, this text teaches us in multiple different ways that there is no neutrality. Well, maybe Jesus is true, but I'm not going to say he's not, and I'll just sit in the middle. No, you're either with him or against him. He brings you ultimately to the place where you must consciously choose to receive him or consciously choose to reject him. Now we come to the main verses this morning. Verse 31. Wherefore, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. Before we get to the heavy, hard part of this verse, stop for a moment and rejoice that Jesus said, all manner of sin, all manner of blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. 1 John 5, 7. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Apostle Paul said that yes, sin abounds, but where sin abounded, there the more did grace abound. In other words, you can't out-sin the grace of God. Your sin can't be so bad or so often that God does still not want to save you. His arms are open. He delights to forgive. He's not willing that any should perish. He wants mercy and forgiveness not judgment and punishment, all manner of sin. It doesn't matter what it is, be it murder, assault, hate, prejudice, theft, lies, worship of pagan idols, even suicide itself. God said all manner of sin shall be forgiven unto you. It's available. You can find forgiveness of your sins. Sin and blasphemy. The word here for blasphemy used twice in this verse means vilification, especially against God, evil speaking. So Jesus says there's all manner of speaking evil against God himself will be forgiven you except for one thing. And before we get into it, he says in the back, where he says in the back half of this verse, but the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. I want to pause for one second and say, I think there has been some confusion and even fear unnecessarily about this verse where people are afraid of speaking a word out loud against God. And then they wonder, well, can I ever be saved? Because I said something against the Holy Spirit. I will say, first of all, mostly and clearly, I believe in eternal security. And it's a different message. We preached whole messages on it. It's in our basics of biblical discipleship, if anyone would like that material. But I believe that the Bible teaches that once we are born again, we have already received eternal life. We are not in danger of losing it. If you sit here as a child of God this morning, you're not in danger of God changing his mind about the fact that he saved you. If you're once saved, you've always been saved. And I believe you will always be saved. And I believe that. With all of my heart, these blasphemers, the Pharisees, were never saved. They were not losing their salvation. They were showing evidence they never knew God in the first place. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, listen, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. In other words, if you have been saved, you have been given everlasting life as a present possession. You hold it now. And by definition, everlasting life is life that cannot be given away or taken away. It lasts forever. 
And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinance that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. I believe that first John tells us in context that those who say that Jesus is not God, they say Jesus is not the Messiah. He says they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have surely continued with us. Therefore, I believe that if someone says Jesus is not God, Jesus is not the only way to heaven. Even if they used to say the opposite, they give evidence, I believe, not that they lost their salvation, but that they were never saved in the first place. So Jesus says, if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you will not be forgiven. What then does this mean? Okay, here's what happened in the text. Jesus did a miracle right in front of them. Some people have said, well, the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost could only be committed when Jesus was on earth. In some ways, I guess you could say that exact same sin can't be replicated today unless Jesus was in front of you doing an actual earth-altering miracle and you still said, no, it's of the devil. That's the sin they committed. But however, blaspheming the Holy Ghost and rejecting His testimony to your heart that Jesus is God and you must be saved is indeed a sin that can be committed in this dispensation. Yet they said, it is of Satan. We reject Christ. Compare their reaction to the reaction of the crowd who said, is not this the son of David? Against all logic and evidence, they said, this is done of the devil. The Holy Spirit was involved in the ministry and the work that Jesus Christ did. It says that Jesus of Nazareth went about doing good, healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. But the first part of that verse says, he was anointed with the Holy Ghost. The Trinity endorsed the miracle that Jesus did, and the Holy Spirit empowered him to do so. 1 Peter 3, 18 says, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, quickened by the Holy Spirit of God. And one more, But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken or make alive your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. Who raised up Jesus from the dead? The Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the Holy Spirit was blessing and empowering the very miracles that Jesus did. Against all reason, the Pharisees consciously rejected the truth and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I hope I'm not moving too quickly. But what is the work of the Holy Spirit? What does He do in salvation? What does He do in our day and age? John tells us, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. The Comforter is another word for the Holy Spirit. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. To reprove means to convict, to rebuke. And as I've often said, if you want to try and share your faith, you should take heart that you don't have to be the best at articulating the way of salvation. You don't have to memorize every scripture. You don't have to have the answer to every single question. Because when you simply tell the truth, Jesus is God, you're a sinner. If you die in your sins, you're lost. You must receive Christ as Savior. It's not by works, it's by grace. 
The Bible teaches us the Holy Spirit of God is reproving that heart of their sin, of righteousness, of judgment to come. And is telling them, this is the truth. You must receive it. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. In Acts chapter 2, it says that Peter was preaching the story of Jesus Christ. How the Jews put him to death, but he rose again for the sins of mankind. And the scripture says when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. The word there for pricked means pierced through. No one physically did it, but while Peter preached the word of God, the Holy Spirit of God pulled at their heart, pierced it, convicted them, and said, this is the truth. And it led them to saying, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, believe, be baptized, be saved, and you'll be forgiven and receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, when the Comforter is come, He will testify of me. He will tell hearts, Jesus is God. Receive Jesus. So then John says in 1 John, anyone who says Jesus is not the Messiah has given evidence that they are not of God. They do not have the Father. One cannot deny Jesus Christ, but still claim God. If they don't believe in Jesus, they don't know God. That's what the Bible says. They knew the truth, yet they intentionally rejected it. Rejected Jesus Christ. They did this. They, I'm sorry, they did despite to God's grace and to His Holy Spirit by blaspheming God Himself and rejecting salvation. The Bible tells us this sin is unforgivable. How are we saved? How do we come to know the Lord? 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that God has made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He died for us. If we believe in what He did, receive Him as our Savior, we are made righteous because He was made sin. John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. He that believeth on Him is not condemned. You see it? You believe on Jesus. You receive Him. You're passed from death all the way unto life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You see, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world. They were already condemned by the time He got here because of their sin. He came to give an escape and a way out. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that hath not the Son, he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth. Present tense on Him. If you do not believe in Jesus at this moment, the wrath of God is already abiding over you, waiting to fall upon you. And turning to Christ is the only way to be saved. I said therefore unto you, John 8, 24, ye shall die in your sins if you believe that I am He. If you believe not that I am He, you shall die in your sins. You see, everyone who ever makes it to heaven will be still have been a sinner will still have committed sins that we are guilty of. But if we believe in Jesus, we die being a sinner, yet not in our sins, positionally, in the eyes of God. But if you're a sinner who lives, hears the testimony of Christ, the plan of salvation, and says, I don't want that, Jesus says you're going to die in your sins. You're going to receive the wrath of God. You do this by the devil. 
not by the Spirit of God. Mark says they, they claimed because they said he hath an unclean spirit. This statement is a direct rejection of God, of the Savior Christ, a blasphemous attack on the Trinity, and rejection of the Holy Spirit's wooing and calling to salvation, which is able to be rejected, by the way. I've pers- I'm sorry, I personally find it ridiculous to claim that, that God saves us irresistibly. No, God calls, God woos, but all throughout Scripture, God turns to people and says, I gave you light, I called you, I invited you to be saved, I re- Buked you of your sin, but you said no to me. And that's why you'll be guilty on judgment day. Rejecting what you know to be of God. Refusing to repent. Refusing Christ. Rejecting the conviction of the Holy Spirit that calls you to salvation. This sin is unpardonable. You see, the Bible tells us men will ultimately be judged not by the sins they committed, but by the light They rejected. Jesus walked and it says that he went into certain cities like Capernaum where he did most of his mighty works, most of his miracles, the healing of the blind, the raising of the dead, whatever he did. He was doing an inordinate amount of them in certain cities, yet they still did not believe. And the text says that Christ turned and He upbraided those cities where He had done most of His mighty works, meaning to rebuke them sharply, And he said, woe unto you if the works that were done in this city are done in this city today were done in Sodom and Gomorrah. It would have remained to this day. In other words, your hearts are worse than the city of Sodom where all types of horrible, filthy sins were taking place. Their sins were sins of the flesh. But if I had done the same amount of miracles there, they would have actually repented or enough of them would have that the city would still remain. What is the worst sin? Not homosexuality, not sins of the flesh, but the sin of seeing Christ right in front of you doing a work that is of God and saying, that's not a work of God. I reject it. That is the worst sin. And Jesus said in the day of judgment, the city of Nineveh will rise up and will testify against you at the trial of the ages and will say, you are guilty because Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, a greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. So then I believe that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, the sin that can never be forgiven, it is not losing your salvation. It is not a one-time statement against God or the Spirit of God. Remember, Jesus knew the thoughts and that this was a sin that was committed in the heart. The words that they spoke gave evidence that there was sin and unbelief already in their heart. Another curious verse. He concludes, "...and whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him." But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. How is this possible? You can speak against Christ and still be forgiven? All throughout the Bible, we see people who spoke against Jesus Christ that later repented and believed and were saved. So they could have said in that day, isn't he from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. Isn't he Joseph the carpenter's son? And they later could have seen Christ's resurrected body and been overcome with their guilt and conviction and said, I changed my mind. God, would you have me now? I'm sorry I spoke against your Christ. And God would receive them and let them be saved. Sure he would. 
Jesus' own family, we see indication in Scripture, did not receive Him for a while, but later changed their mind and repented and believed. The Apostle Paul went about killing people in the name of God, saying, Christ is not the Messiah. If you're a follower of Christ, I'll put you to death. But he repented, and God let him be saved. Praise the Lord for that. The thief on the cross reviled him, spoke against him, and mocked him, but then was overcome with conviction and turned. And Jesus instantly said, Today... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. Even Jesus on the cross said that the, perhaps what we would call the greatest sin ever committed could be forgiven. He looked down at those who were crucifying him and putting him to death and said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The sin of crucifying Jesus on the cross was a sin Jesus said could be forgiven. And remember, all of us this morning, if you're saved, we all were lost once and in unbelief and against God in our past. Yet we have been forgiven. We have tasted of the grace and goodness of God. Yet you cannot be forgiven for rejecting the conviction, the testimony and invitation from God's Holy Spirit to repent and be born again. We always stop at 12. If you will give me grace for maybe just a couple of extra moments, I've got this much left in my notes that I'm going to cover here, okay? I'm going to name names here. Are you ready? Ronnie and Noel. They came to me one time and said, Pastor, if you need to keep preaching, just keep preaching. So get mad at them, not me, okay? Everybody else says he doesn't need encouragement to keep preaching. Just leave him alone. Don't tell him that. Hebrews chapter 10. For if we sin willfully, after that we have received knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall deliver the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden under foot the Son of God? And hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing. And look what the conclusion of the verse is. Has done despite unto the spirit of grace. Speaking of blasphemy against the spirit of grace that would call you to salvation. I, I don't have time to get into it, but I believe those verses are speaking of a person who's seen the way of truth. Known enough. Tasted it. But ultimately said, no, I do not want it. I do not want to be saved. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, Jesus said, hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Voltaire, the French infidel and prolific writer, that famous atheist, attempted to destroy Christianity with ink. During his life, he bragged, in 20 years, Christianity will be no more. My single hand shall destroy the edifice. It took the apostles 12 years to, to build up. According to the physician who was with this atheist when he died, he cried out, I am abandoned by God and man. I will give you half of what I am worth if you will give me six months of life. The doctor had to inform him that for all the money in the world, you cannot buy extra time when God says it is your time to go. He responded, then I shall go to hell and you will go with me. The nurse who attended him said, For all the wealth of Europe, I would not again see another infidel die. Voltaire on his deathbed was tortured with such an agony that he gnashed his teeth in an impotent rage against God and man. At times he pleaded, O Christ, O Lord Jesus, then again I must die, abandoned of God and man. As his end drew near, his condition became so frightful that his agnostic associates were afraid to approach his bedside. 
They still guarded the door that others might not know how awfully an enemy of God was compelled to die. Even his nurse could not tolerate the scene of horror. Such was the end of a man who had a high intellect, excellent education, great wealth, and much earthly honor, but without God. Not long after his death, the man who said he would stamp Christianity out from the face of the earth, his house was purchased by the British and Foreign Bible Society and turned into a printing press that printed Bibles. A man named William Pope was at one time a member of the Methodist Church and seemed to be saved and a happy man. His wife, a devoted Christian, died triumphantly. After her death, however, his zeal for religion declined. And by associating with backslidden hypocrites, he apostatized and walked the path of spiritual ruin. I believe the testimony of a man such as this that we'll see happen over and over again is not someone again who was saved and lost it, but who sat in church, who heard the truth, who claimed to be saved, yet somehow he never actually received Christ, knew the truth, yet rejected the truth. He admired this club of atheists. He visited pubs with them, and in time he became a drunkard. He finally would assemble together with this group of atheists on Sundays to confirm each other in their infidelity and often amuse themselves by taking a copy of the Bible, throwing it on the floor, kicking it around the room, and stomping on it. One day William took seriously ill with tuberculosis. A man named Mr. Rhodes visited him, exhorted him to repentance and confidence in the Almighty Savior, and also prayed with him before leaving. In the evening, William sent again for Mr. Rhodes. He found William in the utmost distress, overwhelmed with bitter anguish and despair. He endeavored to encourage him by mentioning several cases in which God had saved the greatest of sinners. But the atheist answered, No case of any that has been mentioned is comparable to mine. I have no contrition. I cannot repent. God will damn me. I know the day of grace is lost. Mr. Rhodes asked him if he had ever really known anything of the mercy and love of God. Oh yes, he replied, many years ago. I truly repented and sought the Lord and found peace and happiness. But I have turned my back on him, scoffed at him, and now I am damned forever. I know the day of grace is past, gone, never more to return. I cannot pray. My heart is quite hardened. I have no desire to receive any blessing at the hand of God. Then he cried out, Oh, the hell, the torment, the fire that I feel within me. Oh, eternity, eternity. To dwell forever with devils and damned spirits in the burning lake must be my portion and justly so. He loudly repeated the reasons for his impending doom. I have crucified the Son of God afresh and counted the blood of the covenant an unholy thing. Oh, that wicked and horrible deed of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, which I know I have committed. He was often heard to exclaim, I want nothing but hell. Come, O devil, and take me. At another time he said, Oh, what a terrible thing it is. Once I could and would not. Now I want and I cannot. He died crying, I have no contrition, I cannot repent, God will damn me, I know the day of grace is past. You who is damned forever, oh eternity, eternity, nothing for me but hell, come eternal horrors, I long to be in hell. He passed away without any indication he knew God. That is a person who if they die in that state and condition is a person who has blasphemed the Holy Spirit of God. And Jesus said that sin 
will never be forgiven. Years ago in ministering, we were able to pick up kids and bring them to church on a bus. And, and, and I don't know if we'll ever do that again. And the day and ages of time have changed and the things you're able to do. But so many have come to Christ through that time and they come back 15, 18 years later to church and say, I got saved here and I knew Jesus. And there was a girl in McKinney who came and my mother went on a Saturday and witnessed to his dad in the housing projects in McKinney, Texas. And she said, are you saved? He said, no, I'm not. She said, well, do you see the truth? Will you get saved now? He said, I'm not ready. She said, there's nothing to get ready for but to come to Jesus. He said, I'm, I'm not ready, not ready. And praise God, as time passed, eventually he said, okay, I'm ready, I'll come to Jesus. But you see, the Spirit comes, convicts, and calls to salvation. And sometimes that heart begins to harden. In the movie about the life of Robert Sheffy, the itinerant preacher, they would depict the altar calls where they would say, come, get saved, receive Jesus. And the people would sit and they would grip the pews and refuse to come while the song would come. Arise, go to Jesus. If you wait until you are better, you will never come at all. Come as you are, receive Christ. And Pastor Johnson, who preached here just a couple weeks ago, said in his salvation testimony, he sat in church under such conviction and resistance to God. He did the same thing. He grabbed the pew, but they kept witnessing and witnessing. And eventually he said, yes, I want Jesus Christ. Just five short years ago, there was a young man, very young in his 20s, who came to visit the church and someone, I, the details are so vague in my mind, but I tried, I remember we tried to approach him about his salvation and say, are you saved? And I know that he said, I'm not saved. And in my mind, I believe he may have said, I can't be saved. But oh, many times we said, can we show you the gospel? He said, no, I, I don't want to do that. I can't do that now. And he left. And his grandmother called and talked about him and some things that were going on in his life. And I said, would you please let me come to your house if he's okay with it for a visit and we can try and give him the gospel. And she said, well, have you been to seminary? And I said, no, I haven't. And she said, well, maybe you could send a preacher who's been to seminary. And then she said, well, okay, I'm open to it. You can come, but I'll talk to him. Because I said, if he doesn't want to talk to us, there's no point in it. And John and David McGee said, we'll go with you. We'll talk to him about Christ. But the call never came back. The door was never opened. And just about a month later, I got a phone call on a Sunday night that without them knowing anything was wrong with him at all, he had suddenly taken ill and he had died and he had passed into eternity. I pray with all my heart that God convicted him and maybe he said yes to Christ before he died. But Jesus said if you blaspheme the Holy Ghost, you refuse Christ as Savior, and you die in your sins, you will not be forgiven. I don't know when it is, but I know there comes a final call. I know there comes a last opportunity. I know God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I know scripture tells us that we can become reprobate to every good work. And God will ultimately say, if that's what you want, you can have it. But it's serious business to consider the words of Christ. And I beg you to believe and to not die in your sins. For Christ said that brings eternal damnation. Harden not your heart, says the Scripture. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Let's bow our heads. No music today. Let's stay in our chairs. Let's pray for a moment. I don't want to not account for the fact that it's possible there's someone who comes to church is here today that does not know Christ. 
Many attended church for years, for week after week, but still did not get saved. Would you please take seriously the words of Christ that if you die in your sins, you will not be forgiven? I'm not big on public prayers and raising of hands without careful explanation of the gospel, but without raising your hand with no embarrassment, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, would you please at this moment tell Him you repent? Tell Him you believe in Him as your Savior? Tell Him you trust Him and not in your good works? Let's pray now for any who don't know Christ. Let's pray for our loved ones. Let's never give up for those who know Christ yet need to know Him. Let's pray for one moment.